Welcome to the 29th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guest, Aaron Puchigian. We're here today with Aaron Puchigian, who earned a PhD in classics from the University of Minnesota and an MFA in poetry from Columbia University. His first book of poetry, The Cosmic Purr, was published in 2012 with Abel Muse Press, and his second book, Manhattanite, which won the Abel Muse Poetry Prize, came out in 2017. His third book, American Divine, won the Richard Wilbur Award and will come out in 2020. His thriller in verse, Mr. Either Or, and that's Mr. Either Slash Or, for the folks who are not visually with us, was released by Etruscan Press in the fall of 2017, and the sequel, Mr. Either Or, colon, All the Rage, will come out in 2020. Aaron's work has appeared and is forthcoming in such publications as Best American Poetry, The Paris Review, and Poetry. The Paris Review, there you go, that's just, that's it. That, that's it. That's all you need. I received that email. What is it? Saturday today. It was only about three weeks ago. Oh, really? From the Paris Review, and I had just gotten out of an unfortunate relationship, and it brightened up my whole day. There I you know. go. I'd forgotten entirely that I'd submitted we need to that. them. We need that kind of karma. You know what I mean? And before we get started, I'm going to say this episode's brand of fuckery is brought to you by Prosecco. <laughs> we now have two bottles because we had an, an abortive attempt. To do our podcast with Aaron, what was it, a couple weeks ago or something? And Aaron brought over a bottle of Prosecco that we drank, and then we bought another one it, thank God. for you. And then you brought one today again, and it's just like the Prosecco never ends. You know, it's, 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 a, bottomless, it's a bottomless bottle. So yeah, let's start off with how we met. Because that's always, you know, that's always important to remember. As I recall, it was my first year at Columbia, and I gave a reading with Katie Rainey. Is that right? At Lamprophonic? Yeah. Who we re- referred to as our producers. As our, pro- with the, you our don't, producer. You don't, have to, you don't have to do that. <laughs> and, and it's and it's, it's plural, our producers. Because I, I like to act like we actually have, have some, like, with, I, like A&Rs I read, back I read with here, the whole know? board. <laughs> yeah. Executive board. With the switchboard yes. and everything, yeah. And then I ended up giving a reading at downtown. Uptown, and I became a, yes, and you guys were all very generous about accepting students, MFA students at Columbia, while I was in the program. And there's so, so many. I would, you. yeah, <laughs> I was, I read, and then all my friends would be regularly reading, and so I had reasons to go, and I got hooked. So now I go all the time. Beautiful. I'm, Beautiful. A, I'm one of your biggest fans. Yeah, and and I think it's safe to say that that reading really just catapulted your career into the stratosphere. It you know? did at Columbia. <laughs> Columbia yes. <laughs> well. It was fortunate in that I got I got to get more readings at subsequently. I think I've read yeah. for, I've read three or four times. Um, yeah, yeah, it's got one yeah. of your regular contributors. Yeah, it's got to be. And yeah, fuck it. Let's talk about it now because your reading is something. It, it's memorable. Let's just say that you're a you're a very expressive reader. You're one of the best readers I've ever. Everyone Thank is. you very much. Oh, oh, oh. That's right. That's right. You co-hosted when Devin was out. I was I there that night. I don't recall. 
So many years ago. I'd be happy to so many co-host ago. anytime. Yes. I was <laughs> at an event last night in Brooklyn with a graduate of Sarah Lawrence, where you guys graduated. It was with Joanna C. Valente. Um, oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. she is another great reader. It was really intense. Frequently, yeah, it was just, I mean, I, I found it overwhelming. She, she mentioned that she knew you both and also knows um, Devin as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, but I just, I had to bring that up because you're just, I... For for those who don't know Aaron, those of the maybe you know I don't know maybe half the population of the world that doesn't know you yet by this point, you really just grab the mic and just the mic becomes your lover, the mic stand, and you just you really just I don't know. Thank you very much. It's, well, I'd be yeah. happy to read, and I hope to do that sometime during this broadcast. But also, um, oh, you shall. It has to do. I mean, I guess we can talk about that and what is one of the things that interests me most as a poet and that is connecting with an audience Mm -hmm. right and so a lot of contemporary poetry for literary historical reasons is alienating and the both on the page and Mm -hmm. when it's being read out loud there isn't a lot of consideration given to the needs of the audience Mm. why do you think that is or um, what what is what is oh oh well partly it's 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 the modernist influence and i respect and everybody loves t.s Eliot, of course but a lot of getting the wasteland requires a lot of footnotes and at a first, yeah, imagine encountering that for the first time without the aid of footnotes or someone to tell you what the difficult parts mean. Yeah. yeah. And it would have been the a very, and, yes, yeah. it would have been a very excluding presentation. And the same can be true also of, I mean, the legacy of postmodern poets in that there are arcane references and allusions mm-hmm. as if there's a coterie of poets, um, a small group that's going to get it, the elite. Yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. general audience, well, fuck them. And so I, partly because I emphasize the oral so much, speaking so much in my poetry, yeah, i gone 180 degrees the other way, and I want to be right there whispering sweet nothings mm-hmm. in the audience's ear. In dulcet um, tones. Going, yeah, in dulcet tones, <laughs> trying to make the audience member come home with me. And yes, and people have responded favorably to that, thank God. Yes, I mean, not the going home with me, but um, the... <laughs> <laughs> but the the audience appreciation, the gestures towards the audience. Yeah, yeah, and especially coming from someone who you kind of at the locus of your craft is this translation effort of of the classics, and that itself can feel kind of excluding in the sense of how many of us are reading Dante today. I mean, in a comparative literature class, sure, but your ability to translate that into modern literature is amazing, and and especially with Mister Either Or. That book is was just so much fun to read because it was hilarious. I mean, it, it, it's a book in verse, but it's like it's couplets, right? Like um, um, I, um, they're, 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 yep, they're rhyming couplets, and then there are. Then I stretch the rhyme out, and then I can condense it. So I, I wanted a flexible medium for a verse epic, and so I, it's all iambic pentameter, like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. But then when I want it to be sententious and catchy, then I'll go yes into rhyme couplets, and then when I want it to be more like prose, more expository, I'll distance the rhymes. Yeah, and so I needed. I'm proud to say it's sort of my own invention. This free rhyme is what I call it. Every right. line rhymes, but there's no particular pattern. Yeah, that makes me think, We just before we got on the air, we were talking about MFA programs and that kind of exclusivity. I do think that students of MFA programs 
really do think that the canon is more important to other people than it really is, you know, and you have, you have this awareness that, you know, so much of our audience, they don't know who the fuck wrote Dante's Inferno. Mm, They like, you know, (laughs) and and, and bless their hearts. Yeah. Bless their hearts. They have other things going on. And it's not, and it's not that these works aren't important, but it is important to remember that, we're writing for our audience and, and your ability to translate that. I mean, to like have these almost like, you know, like Fitzgerald's idea of holding two contradicting ideas at once. You know, you, you understand that the importance and the beauty of the classics and yet you're not writing the classics, you know, which would bore the shit out of everyone. Yes. And I do think that no, is... Thank you for saying that. No, that it, is true. No, really. And it's not a failure on the part of the students at MFA programs. I think it's a failure of, of really just modernizing them. And it's funny because I think there's a whole other end of the spectrum where people are writing novels like about their tweets, <laughs> like, yes. you know. So <laughs> I don't know, but not to get too much there into is, that. You're right. There is a premium. Uh, you may have noticed this in MFA as in the MFA as well, on there's a premium on the novel, on new, on what's next. Yeah. And you can have whole literary sensations that are built up on something that I regard, mm-hmm. I mean, I would regard as interesting, but faddish. And so I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I, I just, my instincts are completely the opposite of that, given the poetry I like and the voice I like. I'm just so freaking rooted in the tradition that I, mm-hmm. I mean, that I you just can have say to fucking it. if you want to. Fucking. Yeah, yeah, we can. I know. Effing, I know, but effing, I know. We, can we, talk got, about we got the effing uh, and we got the R rating. <laughs> we got the R rating. It's all good. So, was there a transition period for you, or did you, or did you naturally come to this sort of conflation of just joy? like, you know, modern joy, I guess you could call it on the page and, and drawing from the classics at once. Or did you have to go through a period where you were kind of writing boring shit that was, you know, a little bit hewn, a little bit too close to that, to those classics? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so it was an actual conscious decision that freed me up to have fun. Again. Yeah, yeah. Um, when was this? And, and so how, how did, how did it, it would have. Yes, thank you. So it would have been. Oh my goodness, two and one years now. Two thousand and nine. I had been traveling a lot. I was. I got a PhD in classics. Uh-huh. I was a professor. It's kind of like joining the military because it's like where you're sent early on in your career. Uh-huh, you know. Uh-huh. And so I had a bunch of temporary positions in places like Utah and rural Virginia. Uh-huh. And then I eventually just said fuck it, you know, this is my life, I have one life, and then I'm going to fucking die. Yeah. And, I'm gonna, and I want to do exactly what I want with it. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm going to do is move to New York City, and I am going to combine, put all the things that I love the most in one book. That's a good way and to go was, about it. Yes. You know, I, th- I think because when, when people ask, we, on an earlier podcast, a recent one, we were talking about the question of why you write. And it's like, that's a great answer to put every one of your passions into, into writing. one and, and, yeah. and show people this is what yeah. moves me uh-huh. the most. And that's D- how you Does move- it move you, yeah. oh dear audience? Yeah. I hope that it does. But that's how you move people. Like, you know, if you're not moved while you're writing, then how can you expect your audience to be moved, you know? So not only your readings, but I mean, the writing itself is just so much fun. I think I read Mr. Either Or in like two days or something yes, you know it was just quick read. you know it's supposed to be like a it's supposed to be like a thriller but i'm, I'm a slow you reader you know it's a, what, what i mean to say by that is that like i just enjoyed it that much okay. you know it was just so much fun it was so funny it was something that if you explain the endeavor it would sound so pretentious but like well not really if you give a synopsis because it is about this <laughs> 
<laughs> this this dude going in kind of like to the seedy underworld. <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, it's like a, a novel in verse. You know, you think of Ann Carson, Autobiography of Red. I love that book, but it's not quite as fun as yours. I'm, I'm going to say it. Like, it's it's not. <laughs> Uh, thank you. And it's, um, but you know, thank again, you. I agree. Uh, I love Ann Carson's autobiography. Yeah, but. It is. A, it is an incredible book. I'm not. I'm not here. Well, to let's see, if, it, if, you, if it's okay, I'll read a little bit from the sequel to Mister Either Or. Just a brief section. Yeah, let's do um, it. This we is can. From we can Mr. do Either Or. All the rage. Um, and so, in the first book, you you are a twenty-something dude and a secret agent and an undergrad at NYU. You fall in with Lee Ling Levine. Who is in charge of Asian the Asian wing at the Met Museum? I'm flushed with lust already. I know Lee Ling. I'm in love with (laughs) Lee Ling Levine, and you have a difficult time getting together. But at the end, kiss and go home at the end of the first episode. But no sex because that's the worst thing you can have is if you your your male and female lead if they fuck in the middle of the book. The tension is. I know there's no more tension. Yeah, and so you're so exhausted from your adventure that you fall asleep right before you fuck right thank god <laughs> it's a little artificial and i'm pretty proud of that but you get together and then apparently you have started getting it on because at the beginning of mr either or all the rage you're living with Lee Ling levine and chelsea you moved out of your dumpy dorm in at near nyu and you're waking up in the morning and you want to get it on with Lee Ling levine but she's barfing She's barfing. Oof. Why is she barfing? Oh, no. Oh, my God. Oh, someone slipped her a Mickey? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? We'll Be- find out. We'll find out. sushi? <laughs> All right. I'll, this is just a short section. Whenever, yeah, whenever you're ready, go for it. Chapter two, Sugar Bear. You woke up wanting morning sex, and now the one you love is kissing porcelain. For four months, Doc Lee Ling Levine has been your buttercup, your minx, your scold, your frow, and all you wanted was some, was, oh well. Poor woman, you can hear her retching echo round and round inside her fancy deco bathroom. What's up? Sometimes it's hard to tell. You call out over the resounding din, Hey, honey, was it something that you ate? The sushi, maybe? Have you caught the flu? There is a flush, and she comes back to you with perspiration on anemic skin and frowsy hair a-frizz and says, I'm late. And so the rest of the book has to deal with dealing with this pregnancy scare. Uh. And eventually then, Li Ling does go and get a pregnancy test and take it. Li Ling is hyper-rational and scientific about things. And so she, when she talks about it, talks about her pregnancy in a distancing, scientific, alienating way that makes you uncomfortable. And so I'll read a bit more about this pregnancy theme in chapter 15 called Human Chorionic Gonadotropin. My God. Yes, I know. It's scary to me as well. Should I pretend that I know what that means? No, it's... um. Well, check it out. What? Well, Li Ling will explain what it is. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, it's... Uh, I trust her. Yes. I trust that she will. Late morning, you are talking to Li Ling. Well, she is talking. You are listening. She won't stop using that detached, ungentle, hyperfactual tone of hers. You see, there would be... A detectable placental effluvium, 
the hormone HCG, issuing from the, maybe, embryo lodged in the lining of my uterus. You cut in, whoa, hey, call me sentimental, but kill the hormone talk. Just say you pee on something, and it answers yes or no. <laughs> Alert me if there's business to discuss, and we'll debate the well, you know, the it. All right. If I can find a store still open in spite of Alfred, a hurricane that is descending on Manhattan, mm -hmm. in spite of Alfred, I will buy a kit and test my urine for gonadotropin. Open and gonadotropin. Gonadotropin is one of the very few rhymes for open in the English language. Well, yeah, and I'm okay. glad that I found it. You got an orange here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, orange and door hinge is door, what Eminem Yeah, says. there you go. Oh, um, Eminem couldn't come up with that one. Yes. I don't think he did. <laughs> and so, yes. And then in the, the last installment that I've just started working on now, it'll be several years in, and there will be, there's a child in the mix, okay. a baby boy in the mix. You've retired from your spy work, but you, of course, get sucked back in for oh, one yeah. last adventure. Yeah. Every time you try to get out, they pull you right they back pull, in. They, oh, they pull you right back in. <laughs> and so I've just started working on that. I think, And I think that will be the final episode. Okay. We shall see. Those are, four. Are we the sequel right here? Are, are you done drafting? So the first book contains two episodes, mm -hmm. and the second book will contain two episodes. I've written episode three and I've started episode four. Got it. And so, that, and that's interesting. I, 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 we can talk about that as well. Let's. That, and so, when I sat down to write a novel in verse, I was experimenting and learning how to do it. I plotted it all out. I storyboarded the whole thing like I was a movie producer. What um, do you mean learning how to do it, though? Because, um, I mean, you, you you obviously have had analogs. Um, yeah, I had, no, thank you. Know? Yes, I did in that there are books. Nothing like yours. Yeah, right? that there are books that I admire that are verse novels. There's Lord Byron wrote a book. It's Don Juan, but you, it's pronounced Don Juin in British English. <laughs> That's Which is a verse novel. And he has all kinds of adventures. That couldn't be more, that couldn't be more antiquatedly like yes. parochial. Yes. <laughs> and that, I love that epic. He calls it an epic, but it's mostly about Byron's voice and the plot is extraneous. He just brings in the plot to move Don Juan from one place to another so that he can go off on and talk now about Russia. Has Lord Byron uh, written pro uh, novels? He wrote a number of epics, but he's famous only for, yes, only for his poetry. For his poetry? Um, okay. And so he wrote Child Harold early on, which was a big sensation and got him rich. And then Don Juan was a huge sensation. Okay. But recently, there haven't been that many verse novels novels and uh, we haven't heard about them there were in the late 80s vikram sait the novelist his first novel was called the golden gate and was a novel entirely in pushkin sonnets in four beat sonnets and i'm fond of that as well but i found the form for it too rigid mm -hmm. and i found the novel uneven and so i wanted my form to be more malleable also, because of the nature of the plots I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with like dime store novel plots or yeah. comic book novel plots. There's pulp, there's pulp um, in there. Pulp, yeah. 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 That I don't feel, I didn't want to sustain a single plot for the, for the length of what would normally be an entire novel. Uh -huh. And so I decided to have two plots and then an, a romantic arc that linked them. I see. And so similarly, there'll be two plots here and the arc will be the pregnancy 
through the birth, through the ra raising of that child. And that'll link episodes three and four. Oh, which you were, you were when you first brought this up, you were a little disingenuous. You said pregnancy scare, but, but I know that already... it's, it is. Yes, the, it's, a, it's a scare yeah. for about half the novel. And then, it's and a then at a climactic day. moment, it's revealed that Li Ling is pregnant and you, the main character, go sort of Cro-Magnon in response, finding out that you, yes, this is paternal instinct that kicks in. Oh, good. You become murderous to someone who's threatening Li Ling. It's pretty uh -huh, awesome. Uh -huh. It's pretty awesome. It is. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> listen to me when I fucking say this. It really is awesome. Was there any decision involved in, in publishing this next installment with Etruscan? Or is that still up, up for grabs? Uh, it's up What's in the, the air. Deal? Etruscan has expressed interest in it. Yeah, and I'm yeah. fairly confident that when I send them the third and fourth episodes, they'll want to publish it. Yeah. But if something goes wrong, God forbid, then I would publish it elsewhere. I would probably buy the rights back from Etruscan and publish all four episodes together. Ooh. And so ooh. it'd be, a, yeah, one Got to get the suits involved here. Yes. God damn. <laughs> but you know, that's something that, uh, I mean, I'm sure you know how to navigate because you have so much experience publishing with translations. And I'm sure that, I mean, that that's how you support yourself, right? That's That's pretty much where... Where you really earn your bread. I've been lucky for the past about 15 months in that I've just been able to live off of royalties from translation. You just pissed uh, everyone off. Oh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, when I, I, that was a big mistake I made on, uh, that was a big mistake I made on Twitter when I realized that I just write and don't work. And like, <laughs> yeah. There's this guy on here who says that he just writes poetry and doesn't work. And people, yes, yeah. I had to explain my situation. And so, no, it's not from original poetry, though I wish that I were. The money that I make comes from so I, I, I but a translation is, is it's important work. This is coming from a place that I have ambivalent feelings because I'm bothered by translations because I so badly want to read the original every time I read one. But at the same time, it means that translations are themselves an art form. And it's not exactly a science. It's not. There are artistic decisions. Yes. That you need to make. And you're obviously pretty fucking good uh, oh. at making those decisions. Thank you. Yes. Lately, my philosophy in translating ancient Greek classics is to, again, with my emphasis on the audience, is to make it accessible as possible, but I'll add some distancing details, whether it be of form, I'll make it metrical, or of diction, I'll use on occasion a slightly archaic word, yeah. or even now and again, I'll use a syntactic inversion That's what I was gonna ask. with, an, with yeah. an archaic flavor. Only just for a flavor to remind the reader that this isn't something slangy that was writ written last week right right and so you can you have effects in your craft choices that are slightly distancing i don't use a lot of them and, I and don't that use must them all make the time, it pretty fun but in order because, it does because you get you get to draw on this well of knowledge because obviously as the translator i mean you know the etymologies so well you know, yeah, yeah. and my only other language is sign language, so which isn't written at all. So it's like I have no idea what that's like. I'm green with envy when when I think about that. But yeah, the, one of the reasons I asked about Etruscan is because I also remember that you did a lot of publicity yourself, and this kind of brought, draws in your social media prowess that that I wanted to talk to you about as well. But yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about with. But what was your experience with publicity? Because we've talked a lot about that on the podcast, and it's a huge deal for us because, you know, our mission statement is publishing books that matter and ways that matter. And the ways that matter 
in one sense, building community, in the second sense, putting resources behind books, not just signing on authors and hoping to win some lottery that it like catches attention, catches fire somewhere, you know, and goes viral. So yeah, what made you decide to kind of independently push your own book? And did you feel a need yourself? Or was that a premeditated decision? How did you go about it? Or whatever the fuck you want to say um, about it, you know? Yes, I knew Etruscan has a publicity department. I and mean, actually my friends Which is um, great. work there. Yeah. But they put out between six and 12 books a year and have limited resources. Yeah. And there are some online forms I noticed of publicity that they hadn't yet started to use. And so I'd put, as I mentioned into this book, Mr. Either Or, everything that I'd loved. And I was, at the time, living in a house for free in California, and my paychecks you just, you just were keep piling pissing, up. You just yeah. keep pissing people I know, off, dude, it's, that's all over. That's all over. <laughs> but my paychecks were there, and so I was like, I'm, I'm going to go all out and invest all that I have in promoting this book. And I did a fair amount on my own. And I, yeah, I enjoyed, uh, I'm grateful, I should say, for the publicity company I worked with, um, JKS, in Nashville. It's hard to promote a work of fiction, and it's even harder to promote something that is as weird as a verse novel. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, a what I went novel, a pulp that's, verse that's, novel, that's, yeah, nobody's ever heard of it before. That's in second person. Yeah, that's in yeah. second. <laughs> and so, I what I went for was not book sales, so that those were pretty good. I'm yeah grateful to say, but but I just went for exposure. Yeah. And so yeah. they JKS got me into like Writers Digest for example and a number of travel blogs about traveling to Manhattan mm-hmm. and I was able to talk about the history of places in Manhattan and then quote from my verse novel mm-hmm. in order to promote it. And so and they got me lots of interviews as well. And so I'm yeah grateful to them and I think I will use them again. But also just in terms of now I was able during that time to build up my social media presence. And yes, we should talk about this. It's interesting to to me that I've come around to be such a social media person. I never imagined myself. Yeah, yeah, I never imagined myself being this way. I didn't either. The the way I justified is this, that during the periods, let's say, in ancient Athens, right? Or even earlier, pre-literate periods, Mm -hmm. right? Um, During the time of Homer, right? Mm -hmm. You have this poetic tradition and it's all mnemonic and people memorize it and in conversation it's clear from the evidence that we have. Mm -hmm. They quote it and quote poetry and it's a part of their daily life, whether it be proverbs or wisdom or little bits of wit that are passed Mm -hmm. along. Epigrams and the like. Yeah. And so it's a part of your everyday life. And for a number of reasons, we didn't have that. For most of, we felt we lost that, I should say, mm-hmm. starting in the 19th century, but especially in the 20th century. And now we're getting it back. And the way that we're getting it back, having poetry be part of, um, yeah, one's everyday life is through social media, Twitter in particular, but also Facebook. And there's a whole new genre then. There are genres of poetry that have come into existence only with the rise of social media. It's Mm. called micro-poetries. And so there's the, to have a form, you have to have some constraint. Uh And the constraint of the form for micro-poetry is the number of characters. Yeah, Yeah, so for Twitter, it's 280 now. I think for an SMS message on your phone, it's 160 characters. Uh And that's that's the constraint. And it allows me then to um, daily present poetry, stuff I've already translated, stuff I'm working 
working on to an audience and get a reaction. And also, I've even started, because people respond better online if they can participate in something, rather than if you're just saying, I did this and it's awesome. If you invite them and you're interested in what they have to say, people are more interested in participating. And so I've actually workshopped poems on Twitter. Yeah. And it wasn't... Yeah, because people um, don't like... When you just force feed, here's like, a poem I wrote. Your, yeah, yes, yeah. And so, Please what do you think of shit. it? Yeah, yeah, what do you yeah. think of it? And what can I do to make it better? And I have gotten so many awesome suggestions. Yeah, out of out, out of Twitter. So at first it was just for literary Twitter that I did it, and now I do it. I just invite everyone to have have a way at whatever I've I've put up there. Yeah, and and there are lots of trolls that say really funny, awful things. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. There are, but there's no um, ba- but there's there... no bad publicity. Yes. You know what I mean, <laughs> yes, and there's a lot of constructive criticism. There'll be lots of people, um, English speakers from all over the world, will have problems with the rhymes because of pronunciation differences, uh-huh. for example. Oh right, yeah. and that's always really funny. And so it's a way for me to have poetry be part of my daily conversation and to try to make it part of daily conversation for other people as well. And so in poetry, we've been happy the past several years, ever since the NEA announced that reading readership rates of poetry... And for, the, for those of us out there listening that don't know what the NEA it, is... One of, oh, the National gotta, Endowment of the Arts there you go. did a okay. survey and discovered that reading rates had risen for the first time ever... And it had been all declines throughout the 20th century. Since they had started. Since they had started taking the exam. In just the last census, two years ago, among people who are 18 to 35, and they attribute the rise in poetry readership primarily to social media. Wow, that was the biggest injection of hope I've received today. I know. <laughs> and I know. It's, it's so rare that we get it. <laughs> and so we're just so used to, we poets, we're so used to fighting a losing battle, fighting the good fight yeah. against a culture that didn't appreciate us any longer. Uh-huh. And now we don't have that pose any longer, mm-hmm. right? Um, there are people who are interested. And so we have, because there is an audience we know out there, we should be doubly pushed to engage with that audience, to whisper sweet nothings in that audience's ear Mm -hmm. and give it what it wants Mm -hmm. because we know that it's actually there now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was there a transition period for you? Was there a, was there a resistance? Was there a point of self-confrontation? Like I fucking hate self-promotion or something like that. I need, I need to, I need to get over this obstacle. Was it an impasse at any point? I think. Or did it did it organically kind of, swell and overflow at some point. I am an introvert, but I can be good on stage for, you know, short periods of time. Uh-huh. But then I have to go home and sit in the dark and read and uh, you learn from I, I, you're, yeah. you're the complete opposite of me. I'm, yeah. I'm an extrovert. And then as soon as I get on the stage, I'm like a, you're a, dr- I'm a drone. Oh. It's terrible. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> you're fine on stage. But I denied. Actually, I call him... The promotional side of me, I call him my Armenian rug merchant. I'm half Armenian. Yes. It's, and yes. he reminds me of people that I knew growing up who just wanted to make the deal. Okay. Made, okay. And so I denied him and I tried as a poet as an, and as an intellectual to be above business and self-promotion. Right, right. And only Which is what interested all, in I, beauty and art. That's what we all um, want. That's what all I of know. us writers want. You know? but, um, it really is. 
when I sat down and embraced and actually, yeah, and tr- looked at the business side of poetry and sort of embraced it and decided to work with it, then he came out, mm-hmm. like the side of my personality, the Armenian rug merchant mm-hmm. who just wants to sell you a book. Mm. He doesn't even care if he sells it to you at a slight loss. He just wants to get as many, as much product out into the world um, share as it. he possibly can. Yeah, okay, and, and that, so, that, goes, that goes back to, you were talking about, you weren't looking for sales, you were looking for exposure. For exposure, You just yeah. want people to read, read your yes. shit. Yeah. As possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, I understand that. Yeah. Yes. Because poetry, why we do this. poetry's infamously hard to sell. Right. I mean, you can't give the shit away. Yeah. Even the most famous poets, Robert um, Frost. Robert Frost, yeah. or, yeah. I mean, or alive today, like Billy Collins, uh-huh. they don't make their living off of poetry sales, right. off of book sales. Mm-hmm. They make their living off of lectures and teaching workshops mm-hmm. and prizes. And so it's just poetry sells terribly. Mm-hmm. Though there have been. Some promising signs in that area as well. However, how, whether or not you like her work, there's Rupi Carr, for example, who was a social media sensation, and her poetry sells very well. Mm. And so she's been an, an exception. But on the whole, poetry, no, it sells horribly. And so, yes, you have other objectives in terms of promoting a book, a poetry book, right, than book sales. Because inevitably, if you go for that, you're going to be very disappointed. Yeah. Yes, it's hard to sell. Uh-huh. Let's talk a little bit about the MFA program. You went to Columbia. We went to Sarah Lawrence. We were close. We became friends through the reading series. But, you know, there was a there was an element of proximity that brought us together. What are your thoughts? I mean, because that's another area I'm very ambivalent in, you know. On previous episodes, I think I've expressed myself enough, so I'll just kind of hand it over to you. <laughs> and then we can, you know... <laughs> We'll, we'll hear what you have to say, and then I'll. We'll, uh, you can be my sounding board. <laughs> I have, or the converse. I have come to terms with my two years at Columbia. When I was there, and this has nothing to do with the program, I was not a particularly happy person. Circumstance. Pers- yeah. yeah, and so I was. I was just really depressive. I got a good book out of that time. I'll talk about it in a second. But I. But I was really depressive. And so, apart from that, I mean, so I don't. I, I don't blame um, the program at all for that. And. and as I, I look back on that time, I'm grateful for it for a number of reasons. In that a poet like myself, who's so involved in past poetry, right? As much as I push myself to use living language, I had for years artificial archaisms that yeah, would pop yeah. up in my diction and in right. my style and in my thought. Mm-hmm. And so I credit the two years at Columbia for finally purging all so of So that was when it happened. From my style. That's yes, when you I was conflated the past. Because I was, yes. And, yeah. I, and so, the, and that, and that, and so they purified me. I had to, every day I had to present poetry. Well, yeah, every day. I mean, every, yeah, every week I had to present poetry, both to professors and my fellow students who had no patience, who didn't have the same interests that I did and had no patience for any of those archaisms. It, and it, so it, 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 I purged my own, yeah, through that process, the awareness and the sort of worry about it, I purged my style. That's interesting um, because, you flaws, know, they were flaws. At, at some point, I do feel like the MFA program holds on to that, um, to, to the canon and, and sort of those antiquated classics and, and stuff like that. But it sounds like it did the opposite for you. For, for me, yes, because yeah. I was coming here from the other direction where I was yeah even more traditional than the traditional system. And Columbia is a pretty radical, in terms of its poetics, it's a pretty radical program. We had... Uh, for, forward-looking. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so I'll tell you, we had the, the leader of the poetry program for years there was a poet named Lucy Brock Broido, whose work I admire a great deal. I find it very inspiring. Whenever I get writer's block, I'll read her work. It's so rich that I can 
it gets my what gets my juices flowing mm-hmm. but she and i didn't get along hmm. we met each other and it was like in, it was an instant dislike um, and she doesn't like that i was a formalist she didn't like that i was a formalist and at one point she even asked me not to write that way any longer and i you know being a badass because i'm like you know keep uh-huh. on just doing even more writing formal poems and so i ended up doing workshops every semester with another poet um, richard howard while I was there, whom I adore, I adore. And Lucy, uh, um, sad to say, she passed away um, just six months after I left the program. And I've come to terms with that and come to terms with her work and that I read her work now daily. And I wish that I'd gotten to know her better and we hadn't had that misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, and so you can see it's, it's, it was That's a an interesting phenomenon yeah. to have to admire someone's work so much that you didn't, uh, and yet you you didn't seem to get along. We didn't get along, as yeah. people know. You know, and I, and I want to say the, my ambivalence about the MFA program really comes more from an, an abstract understanding of well no it's not it's not really abstract it's not personal because my experience at Sarah Lawrence was absolutely wonderful I had I I learned so much I became so much of a better writer but I can't help but think of MFA programs as somewhat of a Ponzi scheme you know because just as you said you, we don't make money on off our book sales. We we learn we become these figures who have published books that people know about, and then we teach, and then that's we how we make our money, money and yeah. blah 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 blah. You know, but yeah, it sounds like your experience was because when I came when I came in the MFA program, I was one of the few people who was really attuned to the to to modern fiction. You know, I was all about contemporary fiction. I I was like, I don't think it's ever been better. I think we are really, it, this just keeps progressing, you know, and all, and so many of my favorite books are modern, modern works, you know? And so I came in and like, everyone's talking about, you know, everything like pre 1900. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> wasn't that bad, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you, uh, you're very fond of Thomas Pynchon, I assume. Uh, t- I, I actually, he's actually, Pynchon's actually one of the few postmodernists I don't enjoy personally. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but David Foster Wallace, David Mitchell, Rachel Kushner, relatively modern writers, yeah. you know, but yeah, I mean, again, the faculty was so incredible. It was such an incredible experience, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's there, there's a it, we just added a speculative fiction element to the MFA program at Sarah Lawrence, and you know I, some people might scoff at that, like oh now it's we're going into genre or something like that. Mm-hmm. But just on an earlier podcast with with Moses Utomi, I was talking about how much I admired that because I do think that we need to adapt, and it needs you know the way the the way that and and that's why I admire your work so much is because you are so rooted in the classics, and yet you are translating that entirely to the the contemporaneous you know so i think we agree that we both enjoyed our experiences there and that yes financially it was a hit and it probably (laughs) will be for the rest of our lives (laughs) but we yeah we had uh yeah the more time that passes the more grateful i am for my time at columbia Yes. But I confess that I did get the MFA. I mean, I'd already published a first poetry book and Mr. Either Or was almost entirely done by Mm -hmm. the time I went there. That I did do it. I went there. I mean, what were my reasons? I'll just be completely honest. I went there in order to get the credential. 
so that I could teach creative writing. And I'll, I'll be teaching creative writing at SUNY Purchase in the fall. So that, that turned out. Mm-hmm. I went there in order to network and make connections. Yep. And it's up in the air as to, as to how much that's going to benefit me or not benefit me. And those are the two major reasons. And I, was, but I was, and I was arrogant in thinking that I had already developed my voice as a poet, and I didn't need any more of that. Mm-hmm. And so I got even more than I bargained for in that my voice was purged of all of these residual, archaic archaisms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to turn to the more personal, because you, you know, glancingly mentioned going through some shit while yeah. you were at Columbia. Yeah. I'm just curious as to how you juggle this sort of introversion you feel or yeah. this or these these or these stretches of di- uh yeah. Yeah, dysphoria or what what have you you know yes. and how it factors into your writing and and your life and everything like how how does this how does this influence your writing how does the writing influence your how you're feeling in the world so i guess like to start like let's talk about when you started writing and like who uh, you are and like how and how it's affected your trajectory you know yes i when I was a freshman in college, I was reading, I didn't, I was actually went to college for guitar performance, classical guitar performance and rock guitar performance. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, I was oh, I love it. And stuff, bands. All I did in um, college was smoke weed and, smoke, and learn yes, guitar. And learn guitar. <laughs> I, yes, it was, oh, undergrad school was so much fun. <laughs> and then I was reading a humanities textbook and there were the opening lines of um, an epic poem in Latin called Virgil's Aeneid. I didn't know Latin, but the, I could just see on the page, I could just see them on the page. And I had a religious experience. And like, I swear to God, I was sitting out front I, of the ivy covered, I really had one too. Yeah. And then, <laughs> out front of the ivy covered English <laughs> building, I was reading this and then the sky became brighter and I was like, oh, it became, I'm supposed to be a poet for the rest of my life and i'm supposed to learn ancient greek and latin and it was just very clear and then and so ever since then i've just done that and there have been good times and there have been bad times Mm -hmm. and i have struggled with yes as with depression a fair amount and i i worry i mean i worry about those times i'm so caught up in my the my person my mental health Mm -hmm. not just because i want to be happy right that that's a new thing that i've started being happy lately but i worry about my mental health from my writing like what's the optimal mindset for me to be writing sure. my best i think yeah and i think a lot of writers are scared that if they're happy they won't write they won't. anymore i yeah. have the uh, i have the op- I, I, I do too yes yeah. when i'm depressed i, can't I write. write yeah like hell i still push myself to write but it's like the analogy i use it's like it's like i'm scraping the bottom mm-hmm. of some metal container mm-hmm. looking for something and there's nothing there but mm-hmm. i just keep doing it obsessively it's not it's not healthy it's self indulgent what i write itself is depressing it's more solipsistic yeah yeah Yeah. it becomes yeah i know know what you mean Um, uh and and also just on a purely practical in a purely practical sense just having the energy to write is is so much harder to muster when i'm depressed you know i do think there is this fallacy out there floating and i think it's dying though this idea of the suffering starving artist or what have you you know it's not to say that i don't think you can glean from that suffering i think we all know that we drama is based on conflict, right? But at the same time, I know from my own experience, when I'm feeling good, I can I can write better. That's it. 
it's as simple it, as that. Simple it's as that. really, yeah. I wish I could say something more eloquent, but there really isn't anything more eloquent to say, you know? Yes. The romantic, like I call that the romantic view of the artist, uh-huh. the, the somewhat alienated yeah. melancholy. Yeah, the words, worth, call them the words worthy and yeah. sort of that, specter. <laughs> that whole myth of the, yeah, the romantic personality of the artist needs to go away. Uh-huh. It's had its time. Yeah, but, so I'm glad to hear you're doing better, though. That's that's good. Do you think it has anything to do with, uh, like, recent success? Or do you think you've made personal strides in a, you know, spiritual sense, removed uh, from the page? It's or, more, I've or... realized what I need in order to be happy. I need to be in New York, and I need to have an active social life. Um, okay. When I'm miserable, I isolate myself. And sure. just try to write all the time and read all the time. Yeah. Oh, I and suffer. I'm, I suffer it, from that. Yeah. Badly. And so that. Yeah. And I, but but what makes me happy? Like when I think look back on my life, those times when I've been happy have been those times when I've had friends and a social network uh-huh. and went out in the evening. And so now I balance it and I try to write all day. And then oh, as soon as six o'clock hits, human then contact. I crack a, bottle of prosecco and it's yeah. time to party and that shit we waited till seven i know man. i know it's still i think it'll be okay <laughs> the, and, and that and that's worked pretty well for me so far yeah late, i mean lately uh-huh. and so i'll try to keep that up the balance yeah of writing because i would, would otherwise i would try to write all the time and it, i would just became less and less efficient and there's nothing to write about and at there that was point. nothing yeah yeah was, i mean we're creatures of observation and we need we need the data or else we can't yeah, There's the, nothing to express, right? In the living language, yeah, in yeah. our ears, the idioms in our ears. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We're pretty close. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking we can close off with oh. a, another reading. Oh, Does great. that sound good to you? Yes, I will. Let me just find it. I'll end with this. That was so fast. Devastating. Oh, this poem, American Osiris. It's my new, it's my new favorite poem to recite. There, I mean, I, I love all, I wouldn't try to publish a poem if I didn't love it. You love all your poems. But there are some poems. That's a good tenet um, to live by. For yeah. which, but there are some poems <laughs> for which you are grateful, where you just feel like you were given it. Oh, I was given this poem. I see. Thank yeah. you. And I, get uh-huh. to, and I get to sign my name to it. I totally know what you're talking yeah, about. But Sometimes when you're in that zone, it's like, like, it doesn't feel like I'm the one doing it, right? Yeah. It, it feels it feels like it's happened. coming from some yeah. some super mundane force. I wish it was you know? like that all the time. Yeah. Then I, yeah, <laughs> no, but usually it's a lot of work. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. This, this poem's called American Osiris, and it's it'll be, it's in a book, my book, American Divine, which is an attempt to bring old style religious feelings, polytheistic re- religious ideas, to contemporary America. Oh, okay. Um, okay. It's called American Osiris. Oh, good. I should explain the open comes from a child a children's game I saw my nieces playing it was a zombie game like tag they say dead man dead man come alive on the count of number five one two three four five and then whoever's it is the zombie and gets up and oh goes my god to... I'm terrified I know we just we just watched a uh, a documentary on um, these two girls who stabbed their friend over Slender, the Slender Man, man. The Slender Man yeah the creepy pasta I remember yeah I don't want to talk about it let's <laughs> American Osiris Dead God, dead God, come alive On the count of number five One, two, three, four I sense dejection in the vegetation I get how red a sun is going down And there they go, the dogs all over town howling like widows, ambush 
mutilation, dump sites across state lines. The deed is done. Street lights will keep on burning all night long in memory of you, the youth, the strong seed giver, the delight, the vital one. It's useless, but I want to strew funeral flowers, the orchid, the iris, Traffic on the avenue is sighing for the loss of you, American Osiris. I smell the crime. In Jersey, there's a scow tugging like rubbish, your indignant liver up the Passaic, post-industrial river. And all the sap in you has turned crude now and soaks from ruptured pipes into the prairie. Your sex is wild boars goring Arkansas. Who axed you, handsome? Who has dumped you raw on this democracy, this cemetery? Sorrow has spread from coast to coast like a saccharine song or seasonal virus. You are what weighs on us the most, darling and carcass, God and ghost, American Osiris. Dead God, dead God, come alive on the count of number five. One, two, three, four. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. <laughs> my God. I think I need you to read my audiobook. Oh, well, I've been, the, um, are, you, are you looking for someone to read your audiobook? Now I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, if you need to, I'd be happy to do it. If you want. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 29th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Aaron Puchigian. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.